Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back uh, to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is Sunday, January the 16th, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios here in downtown Detroit. We want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again. To another edition of our program, this special edition of the Pan-African Journal. Later on, uh, we'll be coming up uh, with our Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the announcement uh, that the Ethiopian government will embark upon a national dialogue across the Horn of Africa state. The Sudanese Forces for Freedom and Change says that any United Nations diplomatic intervention in the country must lead to a civilian government. Former Malian President Ibrahim Boubacar Keita has died at the age of 76, and another bomb attack has taken place in Somalia, leaving a high-ranking official injured. In the second and third hours, we continue our tribute to the martyred Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. On the 93rd anniversary of his birth, uh, we will look back at the 1963 Birmingham campaign, the Chicago Freedom Movement of 1966, and the anti-war struggle of 1968. These uh, and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. So stay tuned. Uh, we'll take a musical interlude with the one and only Alpha Blondie. Uh, let's listen in. Samu, Patendula. Kingston, J. 
America, 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 break the neck of this apartheid. America, 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 break the neck of this apartheid.
Welcome back. Uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, this special worldwide radio broadcast. And uh, that was the music of Albert Blondie uh, from the West African state of Cote d'Ivoire, Ivory Coast. Uh, that's an album entitled Apartheid is Nazism. Right now we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire report. These are just a few of the headlines uh, from today's Pan-African Newswire. Uh, the lead story uh, deals with the article uh, published by Ethiopian scholar Dawit Georgis, uh, who in the publication Borkina.org.com, uh, with extracts uh, from a chapter on truth and reconciliation, in his recent book entitled What a Life, uh, pages from 353 to 423 by Dawit Georgis, says that in a free and democratic state, national dialogue is an ongoing exercise conducted through freedom of expression, through elected representatives, the media, and the freedom to be heard, an obligation of leaders to listen and respond. Special national dialogue mechanisms are created in countries where these kinds of freedoms do not exist, and the government loses control, and the country slides into anarchy and internal conflict. A national dialogue of the type that is being discussed in Ethiopia can become a popular and useful tool to transition the country from conflict to peace and stability. As expressed by one expert, national dialogue can um, broaden debates uh, regarding a country's trajectory uh, beyond the usual elite decision makers. However, uh, it can also be misused and manipulated by leaders to consolidate their power. Properly implemented in good conscience, even though politics does not have any conscience, national dialogues offers the potential for meaningful conversations about the underlying drivers of conflict and ways to holistically address these issues. And that's according uh, to the article. It also says that many Ethiopians have been made to believe that some ethnic groups can succeed and establish their own independent state. Some even compare Ethiopia to the former Yugoslavia. Ethiopia cannot be compared to Yugoslavia. These are two different countries, two different civilizations, and two different historical realities. Ethiopia cannot be partitioned in any form. Declarations of succession could be made by any of the ethnic groups, but none can ever be able to establish a viable state and live in peace. Uh, they will be at war with each other for centuries to come. Succession is not realistic. It should never be considered as an option by informed people who are fully aware of the history of these two countries. Ethiopians are people who have lived together from time immemorial, and the common ties that bind them are too strong and complicated to be broken by declarations of succession. The only viable option is genuine dialogue and lengthy but worthy process of reconciliation and to coexist peacefully and equally with mutual respect for our colorful differences, accepting this reality by the participants is the primary foundation for a meaningful dialogue. And you can read uh, this article in its entirety on uh, the Pan-African Newswire. In other news, uh, in Sudan, the Forces for Freedom and Change said that the United Nations facilitated process should lead to establishing a full civilian transitional authority. The FFC's groups uh, in a position paper adopted yesterday Welcome the United Nations facilitated consultations on political processes in uh, Sudan, the CPPS, 
and expressed appreciation for the international actors who rejected the coup and supported the Sudanese aspiration for democratic rule. The position paper seen by the Sudan Tribune said the current political crisis is a direct result of the October 25th coup. The way out of the current crisis requires an end to the current coup d'etat and the establishment of a new constitutional declaration in which the transitional authority will be entirely civilian, reads the text. The would-be civilian authority composed of the forces of democratic change will implement specific agreed tasks, including uh, preparing for internationally monitored free and fair elections at the end of the transition. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. In the West African state of Mali, uh, Ibrahim Boubaka Keita, the former president of Mali, who took office in a landmark election held after a destabilizing coup, only to be ousted himself in another military takeover nearly seven years later, has died. He was 76 years old. Keita, known to Malian as his initials IBK, had been in declining health since his forced resignation in August of 2020 and had sought medical treatment in Dubai, the United Arab Emirates, shortly after his release from custody by the junta. The transitional government, which is still led by the man who ousted Keita from power 18 months ago, issued a statement saying that his death Sunday in Bamako followed a long illness. The government of the Republic of Mali and the Malian people salute the memory of the late great, the statement said, adding that funeral details would come later. The news comes as the turbulent West African nation faces a deepening political crisis. With coup leader Colonel Asimi Guaita having no immediate plans for a return to democracy as initially promised. Keita won Mali's historic 2013 presidential election, held after an earlier coup in 2012, and a subsequent Fritz-led military intervention that followed to oust Islamic extremists from the power from power in the north of the country. But only seven years later, Keita himself was ousted by another military takeover following months of political demonstrations against his presidency. Keita had three years left in his final term when mutinous soldiers detained him at his residence in August of 2020 after firing shots outside the house. Hours later, he appeared in the midnight broadcast on state television telling Malians he would resign immediately. The country has descended into further chaos since 2020. Waiter last year launched a second coup, throwing out the civilian transition leaders and making himself state president. West African regional leaders imposed tough economic sanctions earlier this month after Guaita indicated that Mali's next presidential election uh, won't be held until 2026 after initially agreeing to an election by the end of next month. The measures halted commercial fights uh, for most other countries in the regional bloc known as the Economic Community of West African States and froze the Malian government's assets in uh, commercial banks. And finally, in the Horn of Africa state of Somalia, government spokespersons uh, were wounded uh, earlier today in a suicide bombing that the Al-Shabaab extremist group has claimed responsibility for. Mohammed Ibrahim Muralumu uh, appeared to be the sole target in the attack near his residence by the busy intersection in the capital of Mogadishu. 
A statement from the Prime Minister's office called Malimu's wounds non-life-threatening. It has been widely expected that such attacks would increase as tensions rise in Somalia over a national election that has been delayed now for almost a year. Such attacks are purely politically motivated actions, said Mohammed Abdulaziz Omar, a local civil society activist, adding that it has also occurred in past elections in the Horn of African nation. Malimu, uh, a former BBC journalist, also survived an attack in August of 2020 after being wounded in a siege that killed 15 people at a beachside hotel in the capital. He was Secretary General of the Federation of Somalian Journalists at the time. The Al-Qaeda-linked Al-Shabaab extremist group, which controls parts of Somalia, also claimed responsibility for that attack as well. With that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment. We want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998 and has published thousands upon thousands of articles and dispatches in various newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, uh, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, if you'd like to uh, have access uh, to uh, the program today, the Pan-African Journal, the special worldwide radio broadcast, just go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week. Only you.
Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, the Queen of Soul, Detroit's own Aretha Franklin, with the tune entitled Soul, uh, serenade from her first uh, Atlantic recording of 1967, entitled I've Never Loved a Man the Way I Love You. And, of course, uh, as we mentioned uh, earlier, this is uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. holiday weekend in the United States. And uh, the federally recognized holiday in honor of Dr. Martin Luther King is tomorrow, January the 17th. It is always uh, every Monday, every third um, um, Monday of the month for every January. Uh, This has been a federal holiday since 1986. We're going to go back and look at the Birmingham campaign from 1963, the spring of 1963, when the Southern Christian Leadership Conference launched a anti-segregation campaign in Birmingham, uh, which uh, mobilized uh, thousands of uh, youth uh, to demonstrate uh, in the streets, resulted in horrendous uh, brutality and arrest. Uh, Let's go back to 1963. This is a rare archival audio file uh, taken uh, from the coverage of that uh, faithful campaign in Birmingham, Alabama, during uh, the early months of 1963. Uh, this was done by CBS News as a special report in 1963. Let's listen in. I'm very happy to be able to announce that we have come today to the climax of the long struggle for justice, freedom, and human dignity in the city of Birmingham. I say the climax and not the end, for though we have come a long way, that is still a strenuous path before us, and some of it is yet uncharted. Nevertheless, it can now be said that after the great struggle, this day is clearly the moment of a great victory. On the face of it, at least, the agreement between Negroes and leading white citizens of Birmingham, which the Reverend Martin Luther King announced this afternoon, did appear to be a victory for the month-long campaign of demonstrations he has been leading. It calls for the progressive desegregation of public facilities from lunch counters to restrooms, for better job opportunities for Negroes, for the establishment of new channels of communication between the races, and for the release of those of the 2,400 demonstrators imprisoned, many of them children who were still in jail. But the lame duck city administration has denounced the agreement. Still, both the Negro and the white negotiators insist tonight that they think it will be implemented and new demonstrations have been called off until the city acts. Tonight, Attorney General Robert Kennedy said that there would be more racial crises like the one in Birmingham, but the lessons learned there can be used to solve future problems between whites and Negroes. The lesson, Kennedy said, is that the agreement was reached because the people were prepared to sit down and work things out. But the wounds have not healed, and the memories of what may have been this country's most significant collision of the races are both fresh and bitter. The climactic events of the past week in Birmingham are the subject of tonight's eyewitness report. Your correspondent, Charles Collingwood. Big news of the week. Tonight witness, breakthrough in Birmingham. Brought to you by L&M, the 
filter cigarette for people who really like to smoke. L&M in pack or box. time like this, when a cigarette means a lot, you get lots more from L&M. It's the rich flavor leaf that does it. L&M has actually more of this longer-aged and extra-cured tobacco leaf than even some unfiltered cigarettes. You get more body. More body in the blend. More flavor. More flavor in the smoke. More taste. More taste through the filter. Get lots more L&M's filter is the modern filter. All white inside and outside, so only pure white touches your lips. L&M's a filter cigarette for people who really like to smoke. So get more body, more flavor, more taste. Get lots more from L&M. Lots more. This is Birmingham, the South's mightiest industrial city, as the world knew it this week. These are the front lines of the battle between Dr. Martin Luther King's Negro Disciples of Nonviolence and the uniformed forces of Birmingham led by Commissioner Eugene Bull Connor, who says, we were trying to be nice to them, but they won't let us be. The Negro leaders say this will lay the whole issue before the conscience of the community and the nation. <laughs> The scene is last Saturday. The sights and sounds filmed and recorded as they happened. The place is near the 16th Street Baptist Church, the starting point for Negro demonstrations. white in Birmingham, had been building up to scenes to clashes like this. Tempers had worn thin on both sides. The situation was perilously close to an explosion. Sometimes the Negroes were not able to contain their anger, to remain non-violent. And they fought back. They threw rocks and broken bottles. There were reports that some of them had knives and guns. But Negro leaders said those people were not their followers. They were, they said, onlookers drawn in by what they saw. 
There were injuries on this day, and the violence prompted an appeal from one of the Negro leaders. The Reverend James Beevil borrowed a police bullhorn and told the crowds to disperse if they weren't going to demonstrate in a non-violent way. Arrests were made in mass lots, everyone charged with the same offense, parading without a permit. The Negroes had asked for permits and had been denied them. City police were carrying out their pledge to fill their jails to capacity if necessary. They are acting according to the wishes of Bull Connor, the police commissioner, who has set the segregationist tone of the city for many years. In the face of Negro resistance, Commissioner Connor has said repeatedly that he'll never back down. It was against this background that Dr. King was asked what he meant when he said that achievement of a breakthrough in Birmingham could crack the whole South. Well, Birmingham is a symbol of hardcore resistance to integration. It is probably the most thoroughly segregated uh, city in the United States, and it has had uh, more unsolved bombings of Negro homes and churches than any city in the United States. And the injustices inflicted upon Negroes uh, are no uh, notorious realities. Consequently, I have the feeling that if we can get a breakthrough in Birmingham and really break down the walls of segregation, it will demonstrate to the whole South, at least the hardcore South, that it can no longer resist integration. And I think everybody will find themselves going along with it if we can get a breakthrough in Birmingham. There are 700 churches in Birmingham, and the Negro ones are the rallying places for the forces of active nonviolence. It was here that last Sunday they fortified themselves for a week of uncertain peril, singing their anthem of defiance, We Shall Overcome. went into the streets again. Their feelings expressed by one mother who said, the young people aren't going to take what we've taken. Said another, if I'm going to spend my money in the stores, I think I should have the right to sit down and eat a sandwich in them. The marchers stopped at a small park near the city jail. They were allowed to stay. 
permitted to demonstrate publicly in Birmingham without harassment for the first time ever. This is nonviolence in its most familiar guise, a law that was to be broken later in the week. The Negroes proclaimed they would carry their fight through to victory no matter what. The white police were taunted, turn on your water, turn loose your dogs. We will stand here till we die. And this day, the hoses and the dogs were not utilized. But it meant no particular change in the segregationists' attitudes. A West German camera crew was among those covering the Battle of Birmingham. This is what their reporter heard. What do you think as citizens of, young citizens of Birmingham about these demonstrations and these events? Well, I think it's going to last for a while, but I think we're going to win our side. I don't know for sure. But, uh, Are you in favor of the demonstrations on? No, I'm not. I wish they'd kill them all. What do you have as a citizen of Birmingham, what do you have to say to these demonstrations? Do you think they are right? They're wrong? I think they're very wrong. Uh, the sad part about it, the niggers that live here are not uh, involved at all. This is outsiders coming in there. They couldn't, uh, the only ones they get with the school students to uh, demonstrate here. I think it's real sad. I think they're hurting themselves. Nevertheless, the large majority of the thousands of Negro demonstrators were clearly local citizens. But the man from out of town that Birmingham segregationists most resent is Dr. King. Dr. King has been criticized for moving now in Birmingham, but King's supporters say he had to act or others more violent would. He himself likes to quote Gandhi, There go my people. I must catch them, for I am their leader. Dr. King's fears were also expressed in this recent statement. And I'm convinced that if the Negro cannot find this kind of creative, nonviolent channel to channelize his legitimate discontent, he will turn to other ideologists like the black nationalists. So that I think uh, the approach that we advocate is a healthy alternative to what I consider a dangerous development. Paraders marched out into the hands of the police. Among those arrested, comedian Dick Gregory, one of the demonstrators, not a local resident. To Dr. King, this means that the nonviolent movement has come of age. He says, this is the first time in the history of our struggle that we've been able, literally, to fill the jails. In a very real sense, this is the fulfillment of a dream. He means that white people can't ignore prisoners like these girls who tell why they are in jail. I marched Friday, I mean Thursday. I was on my way to the city hall and I was arrested by police for marching without a permit. And I was arrested and I will stay in here. And I like it in here and I enjoy it in here. And I shall return until our race can get our freedom. Because I don't mind coming to jail. I don't mind suffering at all. And I will the inscription on City Hall says, Cities are what men make them, and Birmingham is now changing men. The present administration, although it lost its recent election, is trying to stay in power until October. A state court is expected to rule next week on whether mayor-elect Albert Boutwell can take office immediately. Boutwell was asked if he's ready to meet with Negro leaders. I'm ready at any time when the immediate threat of violence has been removed. 
to talk to any responsible local people, regardless of the color of their skins. No man is an island. No man has a problem that belongs to him alone. But the problems must have solutions that fit the individual and local needs and must be met at the local level. The mayor still in office, Arthur Haynes, has one point in common with Boutwell. Neither has negotiated directly with Negro leaders. Haynes was asked about complaints of poor conditions in jails because of overcrowding. Well, I don't think that the jail will become too overcrowded. If it is, we will, uh, we will provide temporary quarters and uh, all uh, law violators will be arrested. Uh, this has been our policy down here for a hundred years and uh, we intend to continue it. On Tuesday, the Negroes gave vivid evidence that they would no longer accept the patterns of the last hundred years. This was a day that the nonviolent movement was not particularly passive about its resistance. The crowd surged into the downtown business district. They gave meaning to Dr. King's statement that the Negro is shedding himself of fear. And my real worry is how we will keep this fearlessness from rising to violent proportions. The sudden outburst prompted a call for hundreds of state troopers to reinforce local police. And outside the South, voices were raised to ask why the federal government wasn't doing anything about all this. But it was acting behind the scenes. And by the time President Kennedy held his news conference on Wednesday, quiet Justice Department efforts had succeeded in making sufficient progress for the president to make this announcement. Today, as the result of responsible efforts on the part of both white and Negro leaders, over the last 72 hours, the business community of Birmingham has responded in a constructive and commendable fashion and pledged that substantial steps would begin to meet the justifiable needs of the Negro community. Negro leaders have announced suspension of their demonstrations. And when the newly elected mayor who has indicated his desire to resolve these problems takes office. The city of Birmingham has committed itself wholeheartedly to continuing progress in this area. The prospective removal of some racial barriers in Birmingham was announced by Negro leaders at a news conference this afternoon. The sentiments of the Negro community were expressed by the Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth, who earlier in the week was injured by water from firemen's hoses. The city of Birmingham has reached an accord with its conscience. The acceptance of responsibility by local and Negro leadership, local white and Negro leadership offers an example of a free people uniting to meet and solve their problems. Birmingham may well offer the, for 20th century America an example of progressive racial relations and for all mankind, the dawn of a new day, a promise for all men, a day of opportunity, and a new sense of freedom for all Americans. Dr. King says he thinks city authorities probably will go along with the agreement, even though it was drawn up by white business leaders and not by city officials. One of the businessmen says his committee represents employers of 80% of the city's workforce. 
and he said the accord was essential to avoid a dangerous and imminent explosion. And another white Southern spokesman, James Kilpatrick, editor of the Richmond News Leader, said he felt the Negro could have accomplished more in other ways. My fear there in Birmingham would be that while they, they'll gain something out of this, they may gain the desegregation of this store or this lunch counter or something else. But in the end, I think they're going to wind up by being at once closer together and farther apart, if I make myself at all clear. I think there's a Pyrrhic victory uh, and a few more such victories, and they will have lost the whole ultimate goal that they're after. But I don't think it can be attained this way. This opinion of Mr. Kilpatrick's is indicative of the kind of discussion that Negro tactics in Birmingham have generated. There is speculation about a new Negro, a swing to increased militancy. An examination of this aspect of the segregation story in a moment after this message. Grand Central Station, Crossroads of America. Men and women who might be your neighbors stop to admire the 63 Rambler, best-selling Rambler in history. Here are their faces and what they said, recorded on the spot. Oh, I see an awful lot of Ramblers on the road. Quite a few people switching to Ramblers. And they are all very pleased. It's a new shape. Brand new. It's an excellent buy. Matter of fact, we'll be buying a 63, I know. Buy was sold by friends. I believe is selling so many cars because of the uh, reputation of the automobile. The car of the year. Deserves the award at the Motor Trend 1963 Award. A lot more to offer, better, better price. We have uh, a lot of ramblers on our street. Well, they must be good because I see them all around. We're a rambler family. This is the third one I've had. It just won me over completely. Way ahead of I'm very much impressed. Rambler owners are your best salesmen. Rambler 63, winner of Motor Trend Magazine's Car of the Year Award. Drive it at your Rambler dealers. These people came to the Shiloh Baptist Church in Washington this week to hear Representative Adam Clayton Powell. He's been a controversial spokesman for his race for many years, and his critics have labeled him a demagogue and a racist. But his audience liked what they heard. New Negro today. And we got a new message. And there isn't anybody born going to be able to silence us. They can use every trick of the courts. They can use every trick of mob violence, but we're still going to keep marching. Keep on marching. Keep on marching. At the welkin ring, sound the toxin, let the drums roll, peel the bells, let the trumpets blare. There's a new Negro now, and he's moving, and he says to you, come on and join me, but if you won't, get out of my way, because I'm coming through. Writer James Baldwin was questioned about Negro attitudes by correspondent Robert Shackney in Los Angeles. Luther King, by his own definition, is dedicated to nonviolence as a tactic and, if you believe him, as a principle. But do you think nonviolence will be the pattern or are we likely to have violence? How many people do you know who are really nonviolent? How many children do you know who are nonviolent? Martin happens to be a Christian. But the world is not full of Martin Luther Kings. The history of the civilization that you want me to imitate is a history of violence, of bloodshed. What happens, whether it becomes violent or nonviolent, I repeat, depends on you.
Mr. Baldwin, let me ask you this. I take it then you're convinced in your mind that what is termed generally the new militant Negro, that kind of leadership will dominate rather than the, if you will, uh, Booker T. Washington kind of leadership. Let's take it out of that, let's take it out of that extraordinary vacuum that we've had it for all these years. It is not a matter of a militant Negro leadership. It is a matter of changing the attitudes of this country. Martin Luther King was a great and heroic man, but he cannot do for you what only you can do. It is your country too. And what is happening to Martin, for example, what is happening to all those children in Birmingham is being done in your name. You have no right, no right not to know that. And you have no right to pretend that Birmingham is in another country, it is not. It is right here in Los Angeles. It is in New York, it is in Detroit. This is, this is the national problem. There's never been a regional problem. At Howard University in Washington this week, the dynamics of desegregation were discussed by a Harvard sociologist who is completing a study of the problem. Professor Thomas Pettigrew, who was born in the South, was interviewed by correspondent George Herman. Dr. Pettigrew, is there such a thing as the new Negro in America? In other words, has the Negro community started to undergo some kind of fundamental change of attitude, perhaps towards some advanced degree of racial pride and militancy? Well, I think there is an advanced degree of pride and militancy, but the term new Negro bothers me and, and for many reasons. Uh, primarily it bothers me because it implies that Negroes were never militant before now. Uh, the uh, historical fact is that each generation since the Civil War of Negro Americans have been called, in turn, the new Negro. Each, in fact, has been new, I think, uh, more militant than the previous generation. I think this is true in this particular group. But uh, the methods have changed, and also, surely, the society in which they're protesting has changed. Now, I think, for the first generation since the Civil War, there is a real, hopefully, uh, chance that they will succeed completely in gaining equality. Uh, many people seem to uh, want to know, are they suddenly, have they suddenly become angry? I think this is a, an interesting comment on white Americans, not so much on Negro Americans, that Negro Americans have had to, by the nature of the oppression in our country, uh, hate to some extent the whites who oppress them. Only now, I think the major difference is that this hate is more external. We can see it as whites ourselves. We didn't want to think it was there before. The, uh, they are angrier in this sense. Dr. Pettigrew, with the objectivity of the social scientist, suggests that perhaps in some respects it is healthy for the Negro now that his anger is more external. And he says for whites it is certainly educational. A summing up in a moment after this message. You can look five pounds thinner in a Playtex girdle. Playtex guarantees it, and you can prove it. Place your fingertips so. Press in lightly so. That's how a Playtex works, too. Fingertip panels, they hold you in like firm young muscles. Without losing a pound, you look five pounds thinner. Or return girdle and sales slip to Playtex for full refund. New longer leg panty style, too. Playtex, now six ninety five up. Also from Playtex... I got something marvelous to show you. It's my new Playtex living bra. It's made out of that new elastic they call Sheer Stretch Ever. No rubber. It's light and cool and comfortable. I just throw it in the machine, add detergent, even bleach. And look... It's a living bra I've washed 50 times. And look at that stretch. Quite new. 
because there's no rubber in the elastic. He really does something for you. You've just got to try the Playtex living broad. The events in Birmingham have sent a chill through most Americans. It's as though most people, black and white, recognize what has happened as the beginning of a new chapter in the relations between Negro Americans and white Americans. The truce in Birmingham, if indeed there is to be a durable truce in Birmingham, implies no truce in this new phase of racial conflict. What is new in this is not, as those who have spoken on this program have made clear, is not the Negro. He's felt this way for a long time. What is new is the way in which he is expressing it. The Negro is no longer following moderate white leadership in his fight for equality. He's taken matters into his own hands. And even the more moderate Negro leaders, like Martin Luther King, are being forced into more militant action, which trembles as it did in Birmingham on the verge of something like racial war. That's the direction in which the fanatics, like the black Muslims, want it to go. What happens next will depend upon whether the bargain struck today in Birmingham can be made to work. But whichever way things go, Birmingham will have been a turning point. This is Charles Collingwood. Good night. Eyewitness. Breakthrough in Birmingham. Has been brought to you by the new Playtex Living Bra. Light, cool, comfortable, yet machine washable with detergent, even bleach. The Playtex Living Bra. and every Friday at the same time for the drama of big events. Keep an eye on Eyewitness. This broadcast pre-recorded is produced by CBS News, which has sole responsibility for the news judgments, the content, and editing. This is Harry Kramer speaking. this nation, wherever there is a substantial Negro population, the Negro drive for equality gathered momentum this week. It was nourished not only by fresh demonstrations and gestures of defiance, but by a formidable series of court decisions which strengthened the legal defenses against segregation. The Supreme Court sanctioned sit-in demonstrations. A federal court ordered two Negroes admitted to the University of Alabama. Another directed the return to school of a thousand Birmingham Negro children suspended for taking part in demonstrations. Still another court removed the strongly segregationist city government of Birmingham and installed a supposedly more moderate regime. Although the Negro is voicing his demands in the North as well as the South, the dynamics of the movement are in the South, particularly this week in Alabama and North Carolina. 
What happened in those two states, with their sharply different attitudes on racial matters, is the subject of tonight's eyewitness report. Your correspondent, Charles Collingwood. Big news of the week. Tonight, witness, week of decision. Brought to you by famous Everetti Radio Batteries, the batteries with power to spare, and by Prestone Silicone Car Polish, the polish that makes cars shine like the sun. New York's Union Carbide Building and a demonstration of power to spare. These four ever-ready alkaline batteries played this radio steadily for 46 hours. Now, these same batteries will fire 1,000 flash bulbs. We connect the batteries. Turn the switch and look. There they go. These same ever-ready alkaline batteries can still play. Play much longer than ordinary batteries. Get ever-ready batteries with power to spare. Shines like the sun. But what's remarkable is the light in this mirror does not come directly from the sun. It comes from the sun's reflection on the surface of this car, polished with revolutionary new Prestone silicone polish. The long lasting polish that shines and protects with a diamond bright silicone shell can even be applied in the sun. Polishes so gently, so easily. Get Prestone silicone polish, one of many fine Prestone products for your car. This is downtown Greensboro in North Carolina, the place where the Negro lunch counter sit-in movement was born three years ago. Lunch counters are desegregated now. So are parks and recreational facilities. There is token integration of schools, but now these demonstrators say they want more. Leader of their struggle to have all racial barriers eliminated is James Farmer, National Director of the Congress of Racial Equality. One ticket. Sorry, I did not choose to say your ticket. You do not choose to sell me a ticket? Is this because of my race? No comment. No comment. Thank you very much, sir. In general, the Negro demonstrators and the white townspeople treated one another courteously. But there were specific jibes at the presence of Mr. Farmer. The farmer in the dale, oh, the burial, the farmer in the dale. Oh, my God. The natives of I'm 
not going to serve you. I don't dislike you, boy. I don't dislike you. I want to serve you. I am not going to serve demonstrators. Today, tomorrow, or any day. And if I came back by myself, would you serve me? No. You're a demonstrator. I would be demonstrating. You're a demonstrator. city administration refrained from making arrests, but then it said it was forced to take demonstrators into custody because they blocked exits at restaurants and movie houses, a violation of fire laws. More than 1,500 Negroes were jailed over a period of several days, most of them students from the North Carolina Agricultural and Technical Institute and from Bennett College. Mr. Farmer said the entire Negro population, 40,000, stood ready to go to jail. By today, most of the demonstrators had been released at the request of the governor, and the demonstrations have become less militant as students have been restricted to their campuses. No overt concessions have been made yet, but a biracial committee has been appointed by the mayor to determine what further steps can be taken toward desegregation. Negro leaders say they hope they can force North Carolinians, proud of their progress in dealing with the integration problem, to live up to their pretensions. Mr. Farmer was asked about the specifics of the Negro situation by reporter Nelson Benton. What kind of breakthrough would you characterize as a gratifying one? Well, the demands of the leaders of the movement in Greensboro, the local core chapter and the ministers and the NAACP and others, are for a completely open city, that is, uh, across the board, end to segregation segregation in places of public accommodation, segregation in the schools, discrimination in jobs, segregation and discrimination in hospital facilities, etc. In other words, Negroes should have the same rights in this city and in this state as any other citizens, regardless of their color. Tonight, a thousand students went to the heart of Greensboro and they tied up the business district for an hour and a half. Could you possibly consider this in any way provocative? No, Mr. Benton. All the Negroes in this country uh, face Jim Crow 24 hours a day, and uh, I think that's extremely provocative to them. And I uh, don't think that an hour and a half demonstration on one day can possibly be nearly so provocative as the 24 hours of discrimination against Negroes. North Carolina's Governor Terry Sanford says he's trying to do something about the Negroes' needs and problems. And he was asked by reporter Benton about the current demonstrations. Do you think that this, as they call it, direct action approach, do you think this is a good thing to achieve their aims in North Carolina? I think the d direct approach is uh, all right. Uh, it's carrying the direct approach like any other approach to an improper extreme. I think that probably sets up a counteraction that does uh, more harm than good. So I think the direct approach is good, provided the direct approach is not abused. 
Do you think then, sir, that it is being perhaps abused? I think any time when you invite arrest that you are abusing it and, and that you are destroying uh, some of the goodwill that's been established under sometimes very difficult circumstances over a period of years. Negro leaders in these demonstrations talk about not fast enough and they use the phrase across the board desegregation. Is this a nearby prospect in North Carolina? I don't know what across the board means. Uh, I think all progress, if it's to be lasting, has to be progress based on uh, mutual consent, mutual understanding, and expression goodwill. So I think you'll make much more progress in the long run if you approach it from the point of view of mutual understanding and goodwill. And uh, that's what we are attempting to do. I make no estimate of how long it'll take to give people better economic opportunities, a chance to have better living conditions for their children, uh, the many other things that American citizens seek. I don't know how long it'll take, but uh, I say we are moving in the right direction. To these Negroes in the city of Durham, North Carolina is not moving fast enough. Like members of their race in Greensboro and Charlotte, Raleigh, and High Point, too, they say they want to be granted the right to eat in desegregated restaurants, not just at lunch counters. And also, like so many other militant young Negroes throughout the South, these young people were quite willing to go to jail to make their point. So far, these demonstrators have met with greater success than those elsewhere in the state. Several city restaurants have been desegregated this week. Demonstrations have been suspended in favor of meetings like this one last night. A gathering of 1,200 Negroes and a few whites, including the new mayor, Wentz Grabarek, who personally arranged the restaurant desegregation. Negro leaders say they're hopeful that there will be more concessions. And the cooperative attitude of the city administration was made note of by Roy Wilkins, executive secretary of the NAACP. You know, at this particular time, when there's an argument, as some of the men say, an argument going on between you and the city of Durham, it's an achievement of some kind, and it marks, I believe, without knowing him, I've never met him before tonight, he was nothing except a name in a newspaper to me, but it marks, it seems to me, the man with whom you are dealing as head of the city when he comes out to a meeting to listen to you state your case and plead your cause in your kind of language before your kind of folks with no holes barred and no pull punches, that kind of a man has to be honest. I personally believe that Durham, the people of Durham, are making progress with Durham's problems. Yesterday, at 10 o'clock in the morning, I assembled some of the business and civic leaders of Durham to look at this problem head on. After two hours of discussion, it was decided that your mayor should appoint a committee to meet with any groups that have grievances concerning civil rights in our city. A citizen, all citizens, all colored, all white citizens, have a responsibility
to their government. And so at this time, as these negotiations get underway, I sincerely pray that you will give to me and the government of this city your cooperation and your full understanding at all times. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. If one were to establish a scale of racial toleration among the states of the old Confederacy, North Carolina would stand toward the top. But this did not save it this week from the same pressures felt in less tolerant areas of the South. It did, however, permit a sort of truce in North Carolina and the prospect of progress toward more harmonious conditions. The story of what is happening in Alabama in a moment after this message. some of the 1,100 children of Birmingham who demonstrated in the streets and went to jail and then were either suspended or expelled from school. The flags were sent to them by students of two New York high schools. The flags were sent to be carried in the demonstrations two weeks ago. Here they're being distributed as a sign of recognition and remembrance of trials past. The children's reaction was expressed by one who talked to correspondent Dan Rather. Why did you want to take part in the demonstrations? Because they always said white folks having this and that, and the color folks don't have nothing. So if all the color folks get together and take part in and uh, fight for freedom, maybe they'll get something. But if they don't, they won't get nowhere. Would you be willing to go in a demonstration tomorrow again? Yes, sir. Children did overcome one problem, and yesterday they trekked back to school. 
The decision that opened the school doors to them was rendered in Atlanta by Chief Judge Albert Tuttle of the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. The return of the students ended the immediate prospect of further demonstrations, and it nullified a city plan to readmit these children for a summer session at a cost to them of 20 or 30 dollars a pupil. Yesterday, the Alabama State Supreme Court handed down a decision that's likely to soften city militancy against integration. It ruled that Albert Boutwell take office as mayor at once. Boutwell is a segregationist, but he's described in Birmingham as not of the police dog and fire hose variety. The new mayor had this personal reaction to the court's decision. This has been and will forever remain in my memory a great, and wonderful day, and I am eternally grateful to the people of this city who made it possible. Uh, Mr. Mayor, your administration assessed and take a sympathetic attitude toward the implementation of the desegregation agreement made by white and Negro leaders? Our attitude will be sympathetic to the harmonious solution to all of the problems with which the people of Birmingham confronted, are confronted, and the portion to which you referred is an important part of our city and of, of our problem. Boutwell's victory came at the expense of the old city administration dominated by Eugene Bull Connor, which contended it should stay in office until 1965. Connor, wearing a memento of the street skirmishes, had this to say about his departure. Wendell, all I can say is that I have enjoyed my 22 and a half years as public safety commissioner in the city of Birmingham. I don't believe I owe the taxpayers of Birmingham anything. They're going to owe me almost two and a half years back pay, whether I ever get it or not. I'm going to make application from a pennies window, and I'm going to get the food line, get me some stamps. I'm going on relief. Bull Connor's departure finds Birmingham struggling with economic problems. Department store sales are off 4% for the year compared to general increases elsewhere in the South. And it also finds the city patrolled by state policemen sent in by the governor to supplement the local force until yesterday, led by Bull Connor. The Negroes say these men are symbols of repression, that they should be removed because city police are adequate to maintain order. In the third court decision affecting Alabama this week, the focus of the state's racial difficulties was shifted away from Birmingham to two campuses of the state university at Huntsville and Tuscaloosa. A federal court ruled that the University of Alabama will have to accept two Negroes, one at each campus. Once before, the serenity of this Tuscaloosa campus was disturbed by racial strife. That was in 1956, when Authorine Lucy attended classes for three days and was then expelled. No Negroes have been admitted since. Alabama is the only state with a completely segregated public education system. Admission of the Negro students is scheduled for June 10th, and there are fears there may be trouble. Correspondent Rather asked students their reaction. What's the general feeling around the campus uh, concerning the agreement to admit the Negro here this summer? Well, all the students I've talked to and my friends feel that there's not going to be any repeat of the Mississippi situation and there's not going to be no violence. 
or anything like that. I think it's just going to be generally accepted among the students. And uh, we all feel that Governor Wallace is going to make a big mistake if he uh, tries any forceful uh, tactics or anything like that. Have you heard any reaction to Governor Wallace's uh, repeated statement that he will stand in the schoolhouse door? Well, they'll walk over. I think that's the general reaction. They'll just walk over. Heck, he's not going to stop anybody. No. Well, I feel like it won't be as much trouble as you know have been on other campuses, but it will be bad news when the nigger comes there. Have you heard much talk about Governor Wallace's repeated statement that he will stand in the door if necessary to prevent it? I'd hate to see him try it, but I'd be proud of him. Obligation to protect the traditions and sovereignty of this state is my obligation and will be fulfilled by me. As governor, I am the highest constitutional officer of the state of Alabama. I embody the sovereignty of this state and I will be present to bar the entrance of any Negro who attempts to enroll at the University of Alabama. This is legal resistance and legal defiance. President Kennedy's reaction to Governor Wallace's defiance was made known at his news conference the next day. It was the subject of the first question. Smith? President, how do you regard the Alabama governor's announced intention to block the integration of the University of Alabama? For instance, do you, uh, or does the government plan to use federal marshals as it did in Oxford, Mississippi, if the governor does go through with his in, in, announced intention to prevent these Negro students from entering? I am uh, obligated to uh, carry out the court order. That uh, is part of our constitutional system. There is no uh, choice in the matter. It must be carried out. And laws which we do not like must be carried out, uh, and laws which we like. This is not a matter of choice. If it were a matter of choice, it would not be law. So that uh, these uh, decisions uh, must be enforced. Everyone understands that. Now, I cannot believe that the governor wants us to send uh, federal troops there. I cannot believe he wants us to send federal marshals there. I cannot believe that he would not prefer to have the people of Alabama govern this matter and accept the order of the court and maintain law and order. Legal steps to prevent the governor from interfering with university desegregation were initiated in Birmingham today. The Justice Department asked for an injunction to restrain Governor Wallace, and a hearing has been scheduled for June 3rd, one week before the scheduled desegregation. An assessment of the events of this week of decision in a moment after this message. Whenever there's a golf championship at stake, you know Arnold Palmer will be in there all the way. Here's a man who really likes to smoke. And what he likes is L&M. He's been smoking them for years. He knows when a cigarette means a lot, you get lots more from L&M. It's the rich flavor leaf that does it. You get more body in the blend, more flavor in the smoke, more taste through the filter. And with L&M's modern filter, the Miracle Tip, only pure white touches your lips. L&M's the filter cigarette for people who really like to smoke. So take a tip from Arnold Palmer. Get more body, more flavor, more taste. Get lots more from L&M. Lots more.
Dr. Martin Luther King, the Atlanta Negro leader, has been directing the integration drive in Birmingham. Correspondent Rather asked him about the effect of Birmingham on the Negro campaign. Reverend King, what about the manifestations in other cities other than Birmingham that suddenly have sprung up? Do you feel that these are keyed to Birmingham? Yes, I, I think that many of the activities that have taken place in nonviolent direct action across the South over the last few weeks and months uh, came into being to a great extent because of the inspiration of Birmingham. Uh, I think Birmingham has inspired Negroes all over the South and over the nation, and I think it has caused them to feel that there is power in this approach, and it has caused them to feel a new sense of destiny and a new sense of dignity. Well, what's ahead in the weeks and months over the, the summer? Is it likely we'll have more of these manifestations of demonstrations in more cities, or is there likely to be something of a subsiding now? I have the feeling that we will have more of these uh, demonstration, demonstrations and mass movements. Uh, I think on the heels of the Supreme Court's decision uh, outlawing segregation at uh, lunch counters and outlawing the city ordinances that uh, make segregation possible, we will see developments that uh, will take place in many communities. I think Negroes will take advantage of these new rights, and I think we will see more mass uh, jail-ins if necessary in order to gain these rights. In that quiet warning of more trouble ahead, Martin Luther King stressed the influence of the Supreme Court's sit-in decision. That may prove to be the most important civil rights document since the school desegregation decision in 1954. For what Dr. King and the Negro leaders of his persuasion are doing is to mount a massive assault upon the conscience of white Americans. And since the law is the embodiment of the conscience of our society, each legal advance becomes the jumping-off place for a new campaign. It is in their belief that through white conscience, the ramparts of segregation are most vulnerable, that the Martin Luther Kings differ from the black nationalists. The black nationalists do not believe that the white man has a conscience. And if the assault upon conscience fails, they stand ready to take up the struggle by more extreme means. These principles and that conscience were tested this week as they were tested the week before and will be for many weeks to come. This is Charles Collingwood. Good night. Eyewitness Week of Decision has been brought to you by L&M. For flavor and taste, it's L&M, the filter cigarette for people who really like to smoke. L&M in pack or box. of big events. Keep an eye on Eyewitness. This broadcast pre-recorded is produced by CBS News, which has sole responsibility for the news judgments, the content, and editing. This is Harry Kramer speaking.
Welcome back. Uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, this special worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, that was a archival uh, audio file of a radio broadcast uh, from CBS News from uh, May of 1963, uh, capturing some of the dynamics of the Birmingham campaign uh, led by Martin Luther King, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, and the youth of Birmingham in 1963. We'll take a break. We'll be back uh, with more in our tribute uh, to Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. States. Three years later, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King had uh, 
shifted uh, his focus to the northern urban cities of the United States amid the rise in urban rebellions, the demand for black power, and the focus on the alleviation of poverty. In 1966, uh, Dr. King intervened in the Chicago Freedom Movement. Uh, Let's listen uh, to uh, another archived uh, news report from uh, July of 1966. Uh, in Chicago amid a rebellion and mass demonstrations against the racist city administration of Richard Daly. Let's listen in. This is Mike Wallace in New York. In our studios in Chicago is Dr. Martin Luther King. Dr. King, I understand that you have just reached agreement with Mayor Richard Daly of Chicago. Does that mean that the threat of violence tonight in Chicago is considerably diminished in your estimation? Well, I certainly hope so, and in a sense, I feel that the threat of violence tonight is diminished a great deal as a result of the agreement. I don't want to give the impression uh, that the agreement reached this afternoon will in any way solve the ultimate problems which we face in Chicago, uh, but I do think they will do a great deal to ease tensions tonight. We'll have an opportunity to talk to you at some length later in this broadcast, Dr. King. First, for an on-the-spot report direct from a National Guard command post in Chicago, CBS News correspondent Bill Plant. This is Bill Plant at the Northwest Armory in Chicago. Despite that agreement between Mayor Daley and Dr. Martin Luther King, 3,000 Illinois National Guard troops are deployed tonight in a four-square-mile area of Chicago's near southwest side where shooting and vandalism and rioting have occurred for the past three nights. The troops are commanded by Major General Francis Kane, commander of the Guard. This is his command post. Thus far, this evening has been relatively quiet. A situation map pinpoints the trouble spots of previous nights. Additional troops are standing by, ready to serve as security guards in the event that prisoners are taken tonight. Chicago Police Superintendent Orlando Wilson said today that he had advised the mayor to call out the Illinois National Guard because he felt that the situation here was beyond the capacity of civil authority. The guardsmen are armed with pistols, rifles, grenades, machine guns, bayonets, and they will use tear gas, their commander says, if it is necessary. They are now patrolling the area. Two persons are dead in the wake of the rioting. There is heavy property damage. There was much looting and vandalism. It all began with a minor incident, and it grew steadily worse. This is the story of the Chicago riots. CBS News presents a special report. The Chicago Riots. Here is CBS News correspondent Mike Wallace. Chicago is the second city of this nation. Tonight it is the nation's number one battleground embroiled in racial crisis. It is a proud and prosperous city, home of the meat packer, the nation's rail hub, merchant to the Middle West. Luxury skyscrapers attest to its affluence. Yacht clubs dot its lake shores. Gracious suburbs lie around its central core. But in that central core are the Negro ghettos, where the turmoil of the last three nights was spawned. Almost one of every three persons in Chicago's three and a half million is a Negro. Citywide, unemployment among those Negroes is three times that of whites. And among teenagers, the disparity is even greater. Eight out of ten Negro children go to segregated schools. The annual income of the average Negro family in Chicago is 40% lower than the average white families. Into that environment last Sunday came Dr. Martin Luther King, 
moving the Negro Revolution from south to north. Last Sunday, Dr. King addressed a civil rights rally, an anti-poverty rally at Chicago's Soldier Field. He outlined 35 demands for equal rights, and he insisted that nonviolence was the only way to achieve them. After speaking, Dr. King led his followers on a three-mile march to City Hall to post a list of those demands to make Chicago, in his words, a free and open city. Those demands, among other things, called for open housing, more Negro employment, and negotiations by the city with so-called welfare unions organized by the civil rights movement. Then at City Hall, as King used adhesive tape to post the demands, the marchers crowded round him. King took the dramatic action just a day before meeting with Chicago's Mayor Richard Daley on the problems of the Chicago Negro. Afterwards, they held separate news conferences and expressed sharply differing points of view. Resolved, they have to be resolved. They can't just be resolved overnight. No reasonable person thinks they can, and no reasonable person expects they can. But I know if people sit down and exchange what thoughts they are, and also with the problem, give some of the ways and means of solving the problem. It's easy to keep saying, certainly we have slums. You have slums in Atlanta, you have slums in New York, you have slums in every city of the United States, and the people of Chicago certainly are not proud of the slums. I'm not proud of the slums. I would hope that tomorrow every slum uh, building in Chicago would be demolished and we'd have a decent home and a decent apartment for every family. This is the aim of the present administration, and this is our program, and this is our objective, and we're going to go through with it, and we're trying to go through with it. The mayor said to us that uh, things were already going on, that they were seeking to do certain things on the question of slums and on uh, the various problems that we face in housing. Our contention was that while things were being done, they were merely bringing about surface changes and that the problem is so gigantic in extent that it demanded structural changes. It demanded an imaginative, bold program because the Negro community can no longer live with token changes. Dr. King and Mayor Daley achieved no meeting of the minds. Critics of both said that neither man was really listening to the other. Dr. King talked later of the methods the Negro community would use to secure what he called a free and open Chicago. He spoke of using the Negro vote, of boycotts, of sit-ins and picketing. And then, on the west side of Chicago, in 96-degree temperatures at 5 o'clock last Tuesday afternoon, some Negro children at the corner of Roosevelt Road and Throop Street opened a fire hydrant. Here was the shabby intersection where it all began. Chicago's slum kids wanted some relief from the heat, so the residents did what residents of city slums do everywhere. They turned on a hydrant. But the police came and turned it off. They said they had to preserve the water pressure in case of fire. The Negro residents were not impressed. They turned another hydrant on. As fast as police went around turning hydrants off, the Negroes opened others. And they protested that once again the police were singling them out. The Negroes said the hydrants were being allowed to run open just a short distance away where Italian-Americans lived. The youngsters made the most of it as the street was turned into a kind of wading pool. These are young people who must find most of their pleasures in the street. Many of them are school dropouts. The juvenile delinquency rates in Chicago are highest in this area. 28 of every 100 children here are classified delinquent. When the police turned off the hydrants once again, this playful spirit that you see 
evaporated quickly. Rocks were thrown at police, and then the real trouble began. There was a chase down the street, and then arrests followed. This was just the beginning of a night of trouble and vandalism in which 24 people were to be picked up by the police. This episode of heat, water, and sudden temper was the start of an evening in which store windows in the neighborhood were broken and stores were looted, but the incidents were still relatively minor. The next morning, Mayor Daly held a news conference at which religious leaders were present, including Roman Catholic Archbishop John Cody. They spoke of the disturbances the night before, and both men portrayed the street episodes in very mild terms. I think that uh, we do not need to, need to be too concerned about these occasional things, although they're certainly giving a bad image to our city. I would hope and pray that we would have the uh, understanding that we're trying to bring to every section of our city. I don't think it was a riot. I think that it was, as other cities would describe such an event, uh, a juvenile incident. But later that day, police again closed an open water hydrant, and this time the response in the Negro neighborhood was furious. There was more vandalism, there was looting, and crowds of Negroes surged into the streets. They were angry and they were bent on destruction. 400 policemen moved into the area. They threatened to arrest anyone who didn't go home and stay there, and they made good their warning. A number of policemen were injured by flying bricks and rocks and bottles. The night brought intensified violence. Molotov cocktails were hurled into buildings and numerous fires were set. Firemen were stoned when they tried to put out the fires. In one block alone, four fires were burning at the same time. While buildings were gutted, dozens of stores were being looted. As police marched through the streets, there was firing by snipers. Police fired back, and two residents were hit and wounded by stray bullets. Police arrested 20 Negro youths and seized dozens of others who were later released. And scores of people were injured in this second night of combat between Negroes and police. By Thursday, as local church leaders gathered at the Shiloh Baptist Church to see what they could do to help ease the situation, it was obvious that something more than juvenile incidents were involved. But Dr. King maintained that his nonviolent movement was not to blame. We are trying to conduct a nonviolent movement here in Chicago, and we are going on with that program. But we need support. And there's no point in the power structure and anybody else saying that because we are peacefully going around trying to change conditions that we are the cause of the riots. That's dishonest. It is untrue. It is unfair to say it to the public because we have stood up for nonviolence with all of our hearts. And those who will make this peaceful revolution impossible will make a violent revolution inevitable. And we've got to get this over. I need help. I need some victories. I need some concessions to take back. Chester Robinson, who formed the West Side Organization, said the violence could be held down if the clergyman would help get the young people back inside their homes. This is why we have to get our agencies into the streets. Not in a march, not as a protest but as uh, men and women who are trying to 
solve problems. And if we can talk to some of these mothers, we can talk to some of these kids, talk to some of these uh, teenagers, we can get them inside. But if we don't, there's going to be more burning, there's going to be more uh, police brutality, and tonight there might be some shooting on the part of the community people. And there was, in the most violent night of the week, CBS News correspondent John Lawrence reports. George, stay down. There might be something killing over here. All right. Stop calling me, sir. There was as much gunfire on the corner of Wood and Lake last night as a Vietnam battlefield. A hundred police shot it out with snipers in an all-Negro apartment fight. The snipers fired from windows. The police blasted back from behind parked cars. I can't tell from right there. On the second window down, to the left. Yeah. That's the son of a... Right up there. Despite all the gunfire at Wood and Lake, not one person was wounded in the crowded buildings, and no police were hit. The snipers escaped in the maze of stairways and apartments. The bloodshed began later, a few miles away. This is Roosevelt Road, running through the heart of the Negro West Side, scene of most of the looting and shooting. It is a slum boulevard of white store owners and Negro customers, where the white man is not welcome after dark. Almost every store window was smashed for blocks. Almost everything was stolen or destroyed, and about a dozen shops were set ablaze. None of the fires along Roosevelt Road appeared to be serious, and few people were hurt. The biggest blow was to the store owners who lost tens of thousands of dollars in goods. A Molotov cocktail, a bottle, gasoline, and a rag for a wick makes an effective homemade firebomb. Many Molotov cocktails were thrown in the streets. A boy was seized as a suspect in the shooting of a policeman in a narrow alley off Roosevelt Road. The policeman, shot in the back while chasing a looter, survived his wound. The wounded patrolman was rushed to a hospital where he's recovering today. One of the suspects, deathly afraid, pleaded with the police not to shoot him. shot rang out and the police ducked for cover. This young man who was from Mississippi was one of two Negroes shot and killed last night. Police say he was looting a store on Roosevelt Road, chased down the same alley where the policeman was wounded and shot. Many were shot in the series of sporadic shootings between police and Negroes. Hundreds were arrested. After dawn, the prisoners were taken to criminal court for the massive task of booking them. 
They were charged with everything from disorderly conduct to treason. Treason in the case of 13 persons caught in an apartment. Police say they were talking about narcotics and planning widespread demolition and murder. There were reports that militant revolutionary groups were taking part in the rioting, especially the shooting at police. During the day, it was relatively quiet on the west side. There was scattered looting, but no serious outbreaks until mid-afternoon. A huge fire broke out in the riot area. A bottling company plant burst into flames and burned to the ground. And apparently, it was set by arsonists. A co-owner of the company told CBS News correspondent Bruce Morton that he had been threatened, that he was warned as late as this morning when he was told his block-long building would be burned. And it was burned. When that wall collapsed, people were evacuated from their homes in the area. But apparently, despite all the flames along that block, no one was hurt. One Negro employee said all the Negroes in the buildings had been warned today to get out, for the building would be burned down. Then Illinois Governor Otto Kerner mobilized the National Guard. 3,000 men from the 33rd Infantry Division were called to their armories, dressed in battle fatigues and armed. Just takes a second to slip it on. Tear gas, but just as a secondary precautionary measure. The division has just returned from two weeks of summer training, and its commanding general says his men are well prepared for riot control. But the guardsmen, who are civilians, seem upset, not welcoming the task of keeping order, possibly shooting at people in their hometown. John Lawrence, CBS News, Chicago. In the last three nights, then, in Chicago, there have been more than 300 arrests in the riot areas, dozens injured, two deaths. At this moment, 900 police are scattered through the Negro ghettos guarding against another violent night. As John Lawrence said, Governor Otto Kerner has ordered out 3,000 men of the Illinois National Guard. They're at the ready. And the citizens of Chicago wait anxiously and hopefully for a peaceful night ahead. The question many ask tonight is, why Chicago and why now? Many of these teenagers are not vicious within themselves to the point of wanting to rise up against a whole city. Whenever they have difficulty, these groups constantly have their little wars among themselves. But it is not a normal procedure to expect young people to rise up against a whole city. It has to be some outside interference. Somebody who should not be doing it. Well, I think uh, you can't charge it directly to Martin Luther King, but surely some of the people that came in here and uh, have been talking for the last year in violence and showing pictures and instructing people how to conduct violence, and they're on this staff, they're responsible in a great measure for the instructions that have been given, the training of the youngsters, and this has been called to the attention I have repeatedly for the last year. The people who were in here training actually training and there's tapes on that there's documentation there's anything you want to show that certain elements that were in our city were in here for no other purpose but to bring disorder on the streets of chicago someone has to train them who makes a molotov cocktail don't you think a youngster makes that someone has to train them someone has to show them 
Dr. Martin Luther King is in our Chicago studios. Dr. King, what about it, this charge that either you or your people are in some measure responsible for the violence that has broken out in Chicago the past three nights? Well, this is absolutely untrue and unfounded. It is a known fact all over the nation and over the world that I have taught consistently a doctrine of nonviolence. I have done it here in Chicago, and uh, all of the members of my staff are absolutely committed uh, to nonviolence, and I think it is totally unjust and even irresponsible to say that the individuals who are trying to bring about a peaceful re resolution of a very serious problem are responsible for riots when they develop. We do not advocate riots. We think they are socially destructive and that they are self-defeating. And I think we'll have to put the blame for this riot where it really is. And that is the failure of America and the failure of the city of Chicago to deliver its promises to the Negro people. And this riot uh, was born out of the wounds of frustration, uh, despair, deep discontent, and uh, seething desperation on the part of those who were misguidedly lashing out against uh, a society that they feel did a grave injustice and continues to do a grave injustice to them. Uh, Dr. King, Mayor Daly says that your people, in a sense, perhaps taught violence by displaying films of violence. Films of what, for instance, to young people in Chicago? There have been instances when we showed films of Watts, but we did it for a very positive reason. We were seeking to show that Watts accomplished nothing but the death of 34 Negroes and the destruction of property and the destruction of a community where the people themselves live, where they needed uh, to hold it together. In other words, these films were shown to demonstrate the impracticality of violence and the fact that nothing could be more unwise than to follow the course of Watts. You were said just tonight to have reached an agreement with Mayor Daley in Chicago. Could you detail that agreement for us? Well, this agreement is uh, something that came about in an attempt to bring about some immediate relief. We realize that there are still long-term uh, things that must be done, and we will continue with that program to grapple with the serious problems of housing, of jobs, of education, welfare, and the other areas. But we felt that there were some things that the, the mayor could do today or tomorrow so that we could go back and say to the people that something will change, and this may ease tensions. What are uh, those things, Dr. King, that are going to change today or tomorrow? Well, the mayor first agreed to provide uh, water sprinklers, so to speak, that could be placed on fire hydrants in uh, communities where excessive heat existed and where children were in dire need of some cool air and cool water so that this would be done immediately. In those areas, people live in very crowded housing conditions, and it's something like this is needed. The second thing is that uh, in the areas of the riding, there are few if any, parks and recreational facilities and no swimming pools. So an agreement was made to build swimming pools immediately and recreational facilities in those areas and to make it possible for Negroes to use uh, parks in adjacent communities 
where they have been harassed and intimidated in the past. And the other thing is, the mayor agreed to appoint a committee of 100 citizens to review all police activities and make recommendations to him concerning ways and means to improve relationships uh, between policemen and uh, the citizens of the community, particularly the Negro community. Dr. King, we had a report this afternoon from uh, Washington correspondent Daniel Shore of CBS News the fact that these Chicago riots were sparked, at least in part, perhaps in large measure, by an organized guerrilla action by armed Negro extremists. Well, I don't know the details of uh, those who may be behind the riots. I mean, I don't know the details of forces that may have uh, sought to fan the flames and the riots. Uh, there may be groups that perpetuated it once it got started. It got started spontaneously. Now, after that, there may have been groups that uh, wanted to see violence and encouraged it. It is no secret that in uh, many of the ghettos of our country, we've read about this in magazines and other places, uh, there are groups strongly advocating violence and underground groups seeking to carry it out. Uh, and I think it is true that this may exist to some degree, but I have no information on that, and I certainly couldn't say that that is the case. Floyd McKissick, the national director of CORE, told me this afternoon that more and more Negroes across the country are buying more and more guns, Dr. King. Here again, this may be true. I know that uh, there is a mood in some segments of the Negro community uh, that is so impatient that uh, violence is becoming a part of their response. I think this is very unfortunate because I think violence creates many more social problems than it solves. But I do think that it is necessary for our nation to work passionately and unrelentingly to get rid of the conditions of injustice, of economic deprivation, of depressing housing conditions, inadequate education, and all of these things which breed violence. For after all, the Negro is the victim of broken promises, of deferred dreams, and that's still a tragic gulf between promise and fulfillment. Thank you very much, Dr. King, in our Chicago studios. Roger Wilkins, director of the Community Relations Service of the Justice Department and a nephew of Roy Wilkins of the NAACP, was dispatched to Chicago early this evening to keep President Johnson and the Justice Department abreast of developments there in that city. For a progress report on what has transpired in Chicago while we have been on the air, CBS News correspondent Bill Plant. Reports of scattered incidents are beginning to come in. They are officially classified as minor, rock throwing, a group of children breaking a window, grabbing whatever they can hold and running with it, and some small crowds dispersed. And 3,000 National Guardsmen are patrolling. Josh Darza has that story. The first National Guard troops took to the streets just before 8 p.m. this evening. This initial unit was the 1st Battalion of the 3rd Brigade of the Illinois National Guard. These troops were armed with rifles, bayonets, hand grenades, BARs, machine guns, and every type of device used to quell disturbances. The Commandant of the, sec of the 3rd Brigade, Colonel Curtis Milan, a veteran of the fighting of Normandy and the Battle of the Bulge, says the National Guard is prepared even for door-to-door -door combat. It promised to be a long night on the west side of Chicago. The agreement reached between Mayor Richard Daley and Dr. Martin Luther King calls for 
the addition of sprinkler units to the fire hydrants in the city of Chicago, federal funds for pools, and a citizens' committee to discuss police problems. These will undoubtedly help, officials say, to alleviate the situation here. But whatever the future is to be in race relations, the city has gone to great lengths to ward off just such happenings as have occurred the past three nights. And those who know such conditions say that unless the conditions are wiped out, it could happen again. This is Bill Plant, CBS News at the Northwest Armory, Chicago. And so Chicago moves into another tense and difficult summer night. But not just Chicago. Well, the fact is that the traditional Negro leadership, the men of CORE and SCLC, of SNCC and the NAACP, these men confess they are not sure they can control the bitterness and the frustration rising now among Negroes in 40 cities of the North. Washington and Baltimore, Philadelphia, New York, Newark, Cleveland, St. Louis, Oakland, and Los Angeles. In all these cities, too, the fuse is lit. There is no intent here to cry danger where there is none. Rather, there is the need to tell America again what frustration, bitterness, and envy lie not very deep beneath the surface of this affluent society. This is Mike Wallace. Good night. This has been a special report from CBS News. Welcome back. And uh, that was um, a report uh, from 1966, July 1966, on uh, the Chicago Freedom Movement, uh, the urban rebellions that took place in the city of Chicago that summer, and, of course, the intervention of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., uh, who this weekend were commemorating the 93rd anniversary of his birth. And uh, right now we want to move into the last phase of Dr. King's uh, life, uh, his Staunch opposition to the Vietnam War, which began uh, during the early months of 1967. And, of course, uh, in 1968, January the 14th, he visited Joan Baez and her mother at Santa Rita Prison. Uh, they were incarcerated for resistance to the draft during the Vietnam War. Let's listen in. The following program has been provided by the Pacifica Radio Archives Preservation and Access Project. For more information, call 1-800-735-0230 or log on to PacificaRadioArchives.org. This is Colin Edwards. Santa Rita Prison is not a fortress-like structure. There are no high stone walls around it. It's more like a prisoner of war camp, the type you have undoubtedly seen in films like The Iron Horse and Stalag 11, or is it Stalag 15? Anyway, there it is, the acres of long, low wooden huts, barrack style, spread over the landscape for, it seems, a mile alongside a desolate stretch of freeway and stretching back about a quarter mile into the countryside. And as you drive by, you see the wooden watchtowers at intervals between the nearest line of huts and the barbed wire fence. I haven't seen anyone manning these towers at the times I've driven by, but they reinforce the prisoner-of-war camp feeling of the place, and mental pictures of Nazi soldiers with machine guns and searchlights ready to gun down prisoners running for the wire come automatically to one. This is over-dramatizing the atmosphere of the place, of course, but I've gathered that what goes on inside sometimes bears parallels with prisoner-of-war camps, or perhaps one should say camps for political prisoners in totalitarian states, 
for prisoners of war do have certain rights guaranteed them under the Geneva Conventions that are not granted to political prisoners. It was to see three of the prisoners at Santa Rita, Joan Baez, her mother, and Ira Sanpo, incarcerated there for 45 days for their non-violent sit-in at the Oakland Induction Center late last month, that a very distinguished visitor appeared on Sunday afternoon, January 14th, a day of heavy, low, gray clouds and scatterings of rain. Despite this rain, a large crowd of sympathizers, a couple of hundred, I'd say, had assembled about 50 yards down the narrow approach road from the entrance gate to greet Dr. Martin Luther King and demonstrate their support for Miss Baez and her fellow prisoners. After spending over an hour inside, Dr. King spoke to the vigilers outside. Let me say how happy I am to see each of you here today, and I want to commend you for your willingness to engage in this vigil and stand in the midst of this rather inclement weather to express your support for all of those who have been arrested as a result of their courageous actions resisting the tragic, unfair, and unjust draft system of our nation. I've just had the opportunity of visiting my very dear friend, uh, Joan Baez, her mother, and uh, our dear friend, Ira Sandpearl. And they all send their greetings and their best wishes to you. And I might say they are in good spirits. You know, when you go to jail for a righteous cause, uh, you can accept the inconveniences of jail with a kind of inner sense of calm and an inner sense of peace. And this is the way they are accepting that experience. They have supported us in a very real way in our struggle for civil rights, our struggle for freedom and human dignity all across the South. And I decided that in a way or rather as an expression of my appreciation for what they are doing for the peace movement and for what they have done for the civil rights movement, I would take time out of my schedule to come out uh, to see them, to visit them and let them know that they have our absolute support. And I might say that I see these two struggles as one struggle. There can be... There can be no justice without peace, and there can be no peace without justice. Uh, people ask me from time to time, aren't you getting out of your field? Aren't you supposed to be working in civil rights? And they go on to say the two issues are not to be mixed. And my only answer is that I have been working too long and too hard now against segregated uh, public accommodations to end up at this stage of my life segregating my moral concerns. Yeah. 
For I believe absolutely that justice is indivisible and injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And I want to make it very clear that I'm going to continue with all of my might, with all of my energy, and with all of my action to oppose that abominable, evil, unjust war in Vietnam. Now let me say this. I see some very dangerous trends developing in our country, trends of oppression and uh, repression and suppression. And I see a definite move on the part of the government to go all out now to silence dissenters and to try to crush the draft resistance movement. Now we cannot allow this to happen. And we've got to make it clear. We've got to make it clear that to indict a Dr. Spock or to indict a Bill Coffin and the other courageous souls that have been indicted will mean indicting all of us if they think that this draft resistance movement is going to be stopped. And let us continue to work passionately and unrelentingly to end this cruel and senseless war in Vietnam. I don't have to go through all of the things that this war is doing to corrode the values of our nation. Suffice it to say that the war in Vietnam has all but torn up the Geneva Accord. It has strengthened the military-industrial complex of our nation. It has exacerbated the tensions between continents and races. And the war in Vietnam has placed our country in the position of being against the self-determination of the Vietnamese people. And then it has played havoc with our domestic destinies. And I can never forget the fact that we spend about $500,000 to kill every enemy soldier in Vietnam, and we spend only about $53 a year for every individual who is categorized as poverty-stricken in our so-called war against poverty, which isn't even a good skirmish against poverty. And I say that that is a great need, a need for a revolution of values. And I say to you in conclusion, and I say to you in conclusion that we must continue to stand up and we must continue to follow the dictates of our conscience, even if that means breaking unjust laws. Henry David Thoreau said in his essay on civil disobedience that non-cooperation with evil 
is as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with good. And I do not plan to cooperate with evil at any point. Somebody said to me not too long ago, uh, Dr. King, don't you think you're hurting your leadership by taking a stand against the war in Vietnam? Aren't people uh, who once respected you going to lose respect for you? And aren't you hurting the budget of your organization? And I had to look at that person and say, I'm sorry, sir, you don't know me wrong by looking at the budget of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference or by taking a Gallup poll of the majority opinion. Ultimately, a genuine leader is not a searcher for consensus, but he's a molder of consensus. And on some positions, Howard is asked the question, is it safe? Expediency asks the question, is it politic? Vanity asks the question, is it popular? But conscience asks the question, is it right? And there comes a time when one must take a position that is neither safe, nor politic, nor popular, but he must do it because conscience tells him it is right. And that is where I stand today, and that is where I hope you will continue to stand so that we can speed up the day when justice will roll down like waters all over the world and righteousness like a mighty stream. And we will speed up the day when men will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks and nations will not rise up against nations, neither will they study war anymore. And I close by saying, as we sing it in the old Negro spiritual, I ain't going to study war no more. Find out something about his visit. We had a very. Can you hear? Yeah, that yeah. goes through in the music. Uh huh. We had a very fruitful visit with Miss Baez. The visit was mainly to express our support to her for uh, her courage, for her willingness to stand up and face suffering and sacrifice in order to make it clear that the position of our administration is totally wrong in Vietnam, and in order to make it clear that war should cease and people of goodwill must work to bring about an end to war everywhere. Do you anticipate any attempt to get her out before her time is served? Uh, no, they don't know about that. Uh, they are supposed to be getting out on the 2nd of February, I think they said, uh, and they have no knowledge of any attempt to get her out any earlier than that. Dr. King, could you explain uh, what you're quoted as saying, that you're now for escalated nonviolence? What did you mean by that? Well, I made it very clear that uh, the anger of our ghettos uh, is very extensive, the bitterness is very deep, and uh, in order to give that understandable anger a, a kind of creative and constructive channel of expression, we've got to escalate nonviolence to the point that we make it much more militant, much more demanding, and much more insistent, even if it takes on the dimensions of civil disobedience. I feel that uh, nonviolence must now 
uh, be strong enough to be an alternative to riots on the one hand, but also an alternative to, uh, to timid supplications for justice on the other. Dr. King, will you clarify once and for all the reported statement that you have said that Adam Clayton Powell is the only man who can now save the nation? Well, I tell you, there's so much confusion about what Mr. Powell said concerning my statements to him and my visit with him that I'd rather not make a comment until I've talked uh, with him because the press has uh, reported uh, certain things uh, attributed to Mr. Powell that I never said to him. And I don't want to get in a public debate uh, with him about what I said to him. I'd rather talk with him about that privately. Well, in your version, what is your version of this conversation? Did you say anything like that to him? I don't know anything about uh, any statement like that made to Mr. Powell. What did you uh, say, sir? Oh, we talked about many things. I was there to get a few days' rest and uh, spent a good deal of my time in Bimini talking with Mr. Powell. I didn't go there for that specific purpose, but after getting there and running into him, I did talk with him a good deal. We talked about the movement. We talked about, and I mean the civil rights movement, we talked about uh, his unjust dismissal from Congress, and I do think that was a grave injustice, not only a slap in the face of Mr. Powell, but to Negro people generally. Uh, but some of the other things that he stated, uh, at least as I have uh, seen them in the press, are things that I never said, and I don't want to uh, uh, say anything about it until I've talked with him, because it could have been misquoted. Did you invite him to speak in Atlanta? Yes, we did talk about that. I, when he told me he was coming to California, uh, I mentioned to him that it would be a good thing for him to stop and preach in my pulpit in Atlanta, but we didn't get a chance to get back to that uh, so that uh, it didn't work out. Um, the King. Sins. That was the reason for coming to Bimini, that you had pressed nonviolence past the breaking point and uh, uh, you had alienated the masses, the black masses. Well, there again, I wouldn't want to get in a debate about this. I did not go to Bimini to confess any sins. I went to get some much-needed rest that the doctor demanded that I get, and I just ran into him in the process. I am more committed to nonviolence than I have ever been in my life because I think it's the only answer to this very difficult problem. Uh, I have uh, seen, seen statements where Mr. Powell said I was ready to discard nonviolence, and I don't know where in the world he could have gotten that impression. As far as alienating the masses of Negro people, I think we would have to look at uh, what is happening and uh, face the fact that polls reveal uh, both the Harris poll and a recent poll by Fortune magazine that from 88 to 90 percent of the Negro people of America feel that my approach to the problem is the best answer. Fortune just came out last week where 88 percent of the people felt that my approach was the best approach in dealing with the problem and 92 said they trusted my leadership more than anybody else. So I think that would be the answer rather than saying that I've alienated the masses of people. Dr. Dr. King. I'm going right back to Atlanta, Georgia. I'll be there in a two-day workshop with my staff and give them their marching orders, so to speak, to go into 15 communities where we will be mobilizing people 
by the thousands for massive mobilization in Washington on the question of jobs and income, and we plan, plan to begin in April. But we will be meeting for two days, tomorrow and Tuesday, going through our whole program and techniques of organization and action so that they can move into these communities and get to work. Well, we're going to start out with a core group of 3,000, and we're going to spend at least two months carrying them through the discipline of nonviolence. We feel that if you can get the initial group committed to uh, tactical nonviolence at least, nonviolence can be as contagious as violence. The main thing is to get your core group committed, and this is why we're going to spend at least two months training them in the discipline of nonviolence. How long will you stay in Washington, D.C., sir? Well, we're going to stay until something is done about these conditions, these intolerable conditions. We're going to have certain specific demands, which we're working on now, and we're going to stay in Washington until we get an answer that we consider a meaningful, good faith, forthright answer to deal with these problems. Do you think there will be violence? Welcome back. And uh, that will conclude uh, our program for today. Our uh, tribute uh, to uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. And uh, that was um, Dr. King's visit to Santa Rita, California in January, January 14, 1968 to speak to uh, artists, uh, Joan Baez, her mother, and others being held uh, at that time for resisting the draft in the United States against the Vietnam War. And uh, if you'd like to have access to today's program, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, we're going to close out uh, with the music of Abby Lincoln from the album entitled Straight Ahead from 1961. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off and have a beautiful week.
quit that noise, Miss Lucy. Put that music book away. What's the use to keep on trying if you practice till you're gray? You can't start no notes of flying like the ones that rant and rain from the kitchen to the big woods when Melinda sings. Easy enough for folks to holler looking at the lines and dots when there ain't no one can sense it and the tune comes in in spots. But for real melodic music that just strikes your heart and claims Just just stand and listen with me when Melinda sings Oh, it's sweeter than the music of an educated band And it's dearer than the battle songs of triumph in the land It seems holier than evening when those silent church bells ring As I sit and calmly listen when Melinda sings Sweet chariot when Melinda sings. 